0: I refuse to use the word intelligence. First of all, it's, it's, it's a bad word. that It just implies there's one thing that we call intelligence that we measure on the intelligence score, and that's nonsense. Uh, we, almost everybody has some special skill where they're really wonderful, brilliantly intelligent at that one thing. Uh, and They may be intelligent at in other things, under this, but we're missing that when we just give a single number. But it's a pattern recognition system. It doesn't have any understanding. Yeah. There are some people who think, well, if maybe that's how the brain works. And if you just have enough of it, it becomes intelligent and sentient. Uh-huh. Recognize, you know, no. We do not teach cooperation in the school system. We uh, And I blame the universities. <clears throat> the universities, we want to hire the best people in the field. Well, the best way... The, The easiest way to be the best person in a field is to be the only one.
1: Could AI be a team member in this co-creation? Could AI AI be the gopher? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the gopher.
0: Actually, I think think that's a good term. I think, yeah, AI is a gopher.
2: Welcome back to Invisible Machines. Rob, uh, this is a big episode, really fun one. We have... We have Don Norman in the studio with us. Don Norman, who uh, I think maybe blew most people's minds initially with uh, the design of everyday things. He has a new book uh, that came out earlier this month. Uh, It's called Design for a Better World, Meaningful, Sustainable, Humanity Centered. So he he kind of introduces this concept that, that we had a lot of fun getting into it with him, like kind of shifting... Not totally away from human-centered design, but more towards humanity-centered design, where you're not always thinking about a product in terms of like the end user, but maybe that end user is is humanity as a whole. Like, how does this product from genesis to termination, instead of yeah. just you know, designed to roll out, affect? Yeah, the and world. it's not
1: just an it's not just another Don Norma book. You know, each one of his books isn't in, in itself super interesting, but. It's it's a combination, you know, of of his thinking and experience and over over his career. Right. So it's it's kind of it's he's taking a a broader look. And uh, I think for anybody who, you know, logically understands that he's seen a lot and the opportunity to synthesize that into a book, um, given, you know, he's been everywhere from Apple all the way to, you know, to to now seeing GPT, yeah. <laughs> chat and um and being able to contextualize that for us all. Uh, it's a great, it's a great book. It, it um I I really enjoyed it, and I think this will be a super interesting conversation.
2: Yeah, it's it's cool too to have this resource at a time when technology is is unlocking all these possibilities for mm-hmm. you know the potential for systemic change. Um, And a lot of these things that we've been talking about. So, yeah, it was great talking to Don and uh, we can take you to that conversation right now, I suppose. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, You know, this week, uh, Rob actually gave a talk about AI and business to a group at Oxford University. So we spent a lot of the week in these conversations about systemic change and also about smarter machines And our thinking was kind of centered around this idea that the term artificial intelligence is a bit flawed or or poses significant challenges, especially from a design perspective, because the word intelligence implies a level of sophistication um, that's really not quite there yet with this technology. And then also when we think of something as intelligent and especially when something can now converse with us through a chat window, at least quite easily, we tend to want to anthropomorphize it as quickly as possible. So I, I thought maybe we could start just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on AI as a term and some of the challenges it poses as a term and then also as a, as a technology uh, for designers to be engaging with now.
0: I was just on a podcast recently, which was you know, um, about intelligence and all of the participants, I, saw, I was the first one asked to respond and I said, I refuse to use the word intelligence. First of all, it's 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 a bad word that it just implies. There's one thing that we call intelligence that oh, yes. we measure on the intelligence score, and that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we almost everybody has some special skill where they're really wonderful, brilliantly intelligent at that one thing, uh, and they may be intelligent at other things under this. But we're missing that when we just give a single number. The second item is. The word artificial intelligence was, came out of the, one of the early uh, conferences back in, I think it was the 19, early 1950s, um, and John McCarthy invented the term. Um, he, was a, he was at MIT then, but he moved to Stanford. He was a logician. And I want to emphasize to people the, that AI has two, two words, and the first word in English is artificial. It's not real intelligence. It's not our intelligence. It's artificial. And actually, the the band of researchers divided up into two halves, one of whom wanted to copy uh, human intelligence. and The other ones didn't care. They just want something that could do something powerfully, whether it did it like a person did or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they use the airplane as the analogy. You know, airplanes don't work the way birds fly. Um, Yeah, some of the aerodynamic principles are there, but it's very different, very different mechanism. And on top of that, what we've now... I'm just reading this book. Uh, It's a really good book. Uh, What was it? I can't remember the name. Um, But it's about the history of neural networks. And uh, I'm almost in the book (laughs) Uh, because it was in the the late 1980s when we had a grant from the Sloan Foundation to do cognitive science. And uh, we invited some... We brought in some postdoctoral fellows, including some crazy guy from England that uh, wasn't successful in England, but the letters said he was brilliant. So we decided that's the kind of person we liked. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember we were tr- teaching them. And so I gave a lecture one day on perceptrons, uh, which was a one layer artificial um, neural network. And halfway through, uh, Jeff Hinton, the postdoc, stood up and walked over and took the chalk out of my hands and said I was all wrong. <laughs> and uh, that what I was talking about was correct, yes, but that was old. And there's newer stuff coming down the pike, et cetera, et cetera. And um, my colleague, Dave Rummelhart, with whom I published many articles, and we were just, our offices were next door to one another, and we ran the laboratory uh, together. Uh, he and Jeff hit it off, and they started building things, and pretty soon they had it, it was... The perceptron had one layer of neurons, and they added a second and a third layer. And then uh, Dave Rumelhart invented back propagation, which was a way of setting the weights, right. and it took off. And it was interesting because it was still pretty weak. And years later, I met uh, Jeff at uh, Google, and I said, wow, you you helped invent deep learning, and you've done all this other work, and he's now called the godfather of neural networks. And... Um, What was the theoretical breakthrough? And he said, nothing. The theoretical (laughs) breakthrough is that our computers today are about a million times more powerful than than they were in those days. Right. And, yeah, yeah, but it's a pattern recognition system. It doesn't have any understanding. Yeah. There are some people who think, well, maybe that's how the brain works, and if you just have enough of it, it becomes intelligent and sentient. Uh. Recognize, you know, no.
1: I like that. I like that. I, I like that analogy used, like airplanes. What if we called them artificial birds? Would that have been better? <laughs> like, yeah. like would that taking, have steered us I've all in the me. wrong direction? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be taking an artificial bird to New York tomorrow. Um, but let me
0: just finish this story. It only take another yeah, yeah, sentence. Um, I think there. I think, but this is. Basically, it's widely accepted. It's not just me. You know, basically, we have two kinds of... <laughs> we have the subconscious and we have the conscious mind, if you will. And the right. subconscious right. mind is what the neural networks are. Mm-hmm. What they are doing is finding patterns. And a long time ago, uh, the mathematician, Poincaré Carre, uh, said that his subconscious... He works on a problem and gives up, but his subconscious mind keeps going. And so one day, you know, he's walking on a bus and suddenly, oops, he's interrupted because the subconscious mind has found a, a fit because it's pattern matching and what we call it a low energy state when it, everything fits and it matches and it makes sense. But he said, you know, the subconscious is very powerful this way, but it can't do arithmetic. And so <laughs> it interrupts me and I have to check to see whether this is really a decent idea. Most of the time it isn't. But when it is, it's really powerful. And we—it's—and that's actually the distinction between conscious and subconscious. And that's what, um, when Danny Kahneman wrote his book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, the thinking fast part is the subconscious and the thinking slow is the reasonable one. And that's the conscious that, model, that looks at, you know, Freud talked about it. It's sort of a sensor that looks over and evaluates. And that's what's missing today. We don't have that. And so it's us who do it. And so if we use these AI, and I use them a lot, the chats, of various types, um, but I use it like I have a good friend who's creative and wonderful, but untrustworthy, not in lying, but that his ideas are sometimes flawed. Yeah. So I listen to them, I get excited by them, but I have to check. And that's how I use them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, its I don't remember who, who we were talking to, but we were talking about this idea that that is the, the the single concept of of self is like more of a threading concept. Like the conscious mind is a single thread, but you've got all these threads that well, are your if subconscious. You, if you want to
0: take, if you want to take terms that we don't understand, uh, <laughs> intelligence is one, consciousness is another, right, and the right. self is yet another. So yeah. you're lumping them all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This like single threaded concept of conscious mind um, and then applying that to a machine that's multi-threaded by just it's your fact that it's a system like you said what is an artificial neural network it's a lot of systems uh, that are working and and sort of plugging holes Um, so so that kind of brings down to like what's left like you said you have this you know friend that is like a bit of a muse for you to help you with your creativity that has good and bad ideas. And you kind of build upon them, um, which, which I would say that's like your creativity. Uh, and then they're like word generation. So they act as a baseline and then you create on top of that baseline. That kind of well, gets. The other thing again.
0: I use it for is the other thing is when I write, as you can tell by my answers to your questions, I go on for too long. <laughs> and so uh, I usually show right. it to my wife and cuts it way down. But I've now started putting it into these uh, these machines and say, summarize it or make it only 300 words or whatever. And my wife took a look at some of the work that had done and she said, I'm not needed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Except... Except, because I tried this on a friend's paper, he sent me this big paper, and I said, I'm not going to read it, summarize it, and I sent him back the summary, and I said, this is a good abstract, and he said, well, yeah, but it misses the most important point of the paper, and that is the point, because the the system doesn't know what is important and not important, but second of all, I also said, look, that's a way of getting your abstract going, and then you can modify it. But you, you, I would worry, if it missed the most important point, maybe the paper is not
1: <laughs> right. is not written properly. Yeah, maybe you missed the most important point. Um, yeah, it's just a reflection. Which kind of comes down to, like, I know this is, like, one of those things we can't explain again. Like, what is creativity, then? And, <laughs> yeah. and what is... And, and more in the framing of like, what is creativity in the sense that, um, wh- what are we actually doing, and, and and is, is this more of a competition between us and machines on who can be more creative, or is this a cooperation, you know, where it's they're just going to help us like in in what you're explaining, um, and I call and- it collaboration. Yes. Right, right, and yeah. could this be a gateway to like being more collaborative with each other on our creativity? Like, when I look at a lot of designers, um, and and I know you in in your book, um, you you talk about this artist versus designer concept, which I find super helpful and really, I think useful. For for lots of people to understand, because I think most people blur those lines, right? And they're super important, I think, to understand in the context of business, what is, you know, art and what is design. Um, because if you get them mixed up, you know, it's you know and everybody it, does. And I yeah. keep trying to
0: say design is designing for other people and artists are designing mostly for themselves.
1: Right, and they're both valuable, but they're very different. Right, right, and and so if you're if you're somebody that holds the purse strings and you perceive someone's coming to say, hey, I want some money so I can make art, they're going to be like, no, <laughs> we don't have time for you to indulge yourself. But if they're coming to say, I want money so I can design, oh sure, right. Um, and so if that person doesn't know the dis- difference and, and they can't make the distinction, then they don't know when to say yes and when to say no. And therefore, you know, you have these projects that maybe don't get funded properly because, because the person with the purse strings is worried that they're just funding an indulging endeavor versus, like you said, well, a customer oriented endeavor.
0: There are two different points I want to respond to in that. One is um, the, the notion of cooperation, that we do not teach cooperation in the school system. We, uh, and I blame the universities. <clears throat> the universities, we want to hire the best people in the field. Well, the, the, best way, the, the easiest way to be the best person in the field is to be the only one. And uh, <laughs> so what happens is that we've, we have specialists and the more specialized you are, that well, the better. Actually, you're deep and deep and deep, but narrow. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, and so we're also grade people. We we only we always say, how can we judge this person? And we give we have to write everything by ourselves. We have to take exams by ourselves, et cetera. Et cetera. Yet you go out in the world, and almost everything is done in groups. And you have to collaborate. And you have to treat everybody else as equals. And more importantly, also. You might treat other designers as equal if you're a designer, but you wouldn't treat a business person mm-hmm. or you wouldn't treat the finance person. You have to, though, because every one of them is. has... Well, you can't do anything in a business without having all these different people work together. They're very mm-hmm. highly related. And so I I argue that we want to teach people how to cheat in schools. And we call it cheating because you copy from somebody else, and since it's not allowed, you have to lie and make believe it's your own. And I'm saying, no, you should copy from somebody else and give them credit. Tell, tell where you got the information from. I used chat for this, and I used my friend Mary for this, and, it's, and I found this article, you know, for this. And uh, by giving credit, it may, because what is creativity? Actually, I believe creativity is almost never is there any brilliant immediate breakthrough inside it that was never, ever thought of. Almost everything that's creative is a novel combination of things that already have been studied and known about. And you can go any place you like. Look at Einstein's work, uh, theory yeah. of relativity. Yeah. It didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't that one day this had this. Break. No, lots of people were struggling with the very same issues. Yeah. And um, so.
1: Yeah, ideas built then, on ideas built on ideas, <laughs> incrementally. Um, we talked uh, uh, with Seth Godin a little bit and. Um, we were talking about co-creation and we kind of brought up Saturday night live, like the writing teams that, you know, it, it takes a whole team to write weekly and be funny. Right. Cause that's like, be funny by Friday. Um, yeah. and, and he brought up a really good point, which is, and, and even still, they write a thousand jokes and only a hundred are funny. Um, and we sort of, you know went like the best thing that happened to Saturday Night live was youtube because they would take an hour and then boil it down to the seven minutes that was actually funny <laughs> and <laughs> and so we actually like it's it's even with the writing team even with co-creation at its best you're still like failing a lot right um and i guess i guess that's a part of a, a, a part of this concept that i think you're bringing up which is like you have these companies that are that are structured around productivity, at, like 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 all come from assembly lines and and how to produce and how to measure production, and and you go well. What does it look like to have a system or a company that's that's managed for creativity, and 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 measuring their success, because that looks more like how many f- funny jokes did you get, not how many jokes did you write, and and were they funny, right? And and I know that there are that there are pockets of places where we see co creation and 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 creative teams that work really well together that have multi disciplines that 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 have different skill sets and variety that come to the table and they work really well. Um, and I wonder. It made me wonder when I heard you talking about uh, artistry if if that's part of the mix up is that. We we think designers should work alone and because we're confusing artists and designers and artists work alone because they work for themselves. But designers need to be teams and they need to work together. But companies need to create structures that don't look like factories and frameworks for these teams to work effectively and create, not produce. I don't know. And, and you measure the team. You know, almost every
0: team has somebody that nobody, there's a member of that team and nobody knows what that person does. But they all agree without that person, they wouldn't be effective. It's it's often called the gopher, you know, gopher in in, a, in, a, in the military terms. It's this guy who always, you know, he's never in charge or whatever, but if they ever need a part, they ever need a new idea, he, shop, he comes up with it.
1: It's like radar you know, and mash. For everyone. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And
0: um, I've also, the, the notion of productivity, trying to maximize productivity is actually minimizing it. Because what you try to do is get the most work out of each person per minute, if you will, or per hour. Right. And uh, it's a miserable way to work. And so mm. what happens is people are not very happy with their job. And they can't relax. They can't be creative. They can't they can't just take an hour off to, you know, get, get back some sensibility. And so eventually they quit. And when they quit, it costs you a lot of time and money to hire a new person and get them trained up and keep going. So if you look at the long term, if you have people who are happier and not pushed as hard and have more flexibility in what they do, in the long term you'll get better creativity and less errors and less problems.
2: You know, there's this other interesting element about Saturday Night Live, uh, to bring it back to Saturday Night Live, because we should do that, I guess. But, uh, you know, everyone who grew up watching it tends to think that their era was the best or that certain eras had the best cast members and, and produced the best work. But if you go back and watch full episodes from any of the eras, there's there's a lot of clunkers, a lot of the skits fall flat. And you always hear the writers talking about how, you know, something will do really well in rehearsal, but then kind of die in front of the audience and, and the YouTube thing connects to that in an interesting way, because I feel like it's like they're creating all these things for us. And then the audience is, is part of the collaborative process of deciding which things to immortalize, like which things do we want to keep sharing and talking about and which ones are we forgiving you for not hitting the right notes on? Because it's not like people have stopped watching the show entirely or, you know, there, there's this general gripe that it's not good. But they're still engaging with it that way, uh, and, and maybe you know, that's I part of
0: the I asked that in the, in the old days, things were much better. I, I looked at that with movies. You know, we used to make these great movies, and now, you know, most of them are not, you know, nothing. And I said, you're wrong, because if you look back at the old days, what you're doing is you're looking at a 20-year period or something, and you have four favorite movies that are just wonderful. Well, 20 years four favorite movies, that's about the same rate that we're doing it here. <laughs> Saturday night live is the same thing because when you look back and say that it was really wonderful in the old days, you're picking out the three or four scenes you really remember from those old days, right? And uh, you you forget that you had to wade through the whole show to find a, a little nugget in it.
2: Yeah. Um, in terms of like co-creation too, uh you know, academia right now is kind of reeling a bit from the, you know, from ChatGPT, kind of instantly throwing into question, like how people are going to generate work, how that work's going to be graded. Uh, you know, your your new book talks, talks a lot about some of the systemic changes that we kind of need to move towards. Is there an opportunity right now in academia to kind of hit a reset button in some ways and create more of these systems where we are teaching people to cooperate, we're teaching them more generalist skills, so that they can kind of move around. I only wish that were
0: true, except that the most conservative people on earth, as far as I can tell, are university professors, especially at the top universities. Mm. (laughs) And uh, you don't make it unless you you basically follow in the footsteps of everybody else. And Everybody thinks that this is, I give my own lectures. Lectures are the worst way to learn. Still, professors teach by lecture, because lectures are the easiest thing for the lect- for the professors to do uh, as opposed to working. And you work on these specialized things instead of working on projects, which are actually more important in the end. So uh, but ch- look, when the calculators came out, remember the big fuss in grade schools about, oh my goodness, people won't learn arithmetic, et cetera, et cetera? And what they missed the point was, because the calculator can do arithmetic so much better than I can, and today it isn't just arithmetic, it can do algebra, it can do trigonometry, it can do calculus, it can solve calculus equations. Uh, that I, used, I, could, I, had, I had trouble solving them, we all had trouble. In fact, we had handbooks, we tried to look up an equation that looked something like the one we were playing with to give us some hints about how to do it, integral equations. Um, and... What happened though is the fuss went away because it turns out that because I can use the calculator to do my calculations, whether it's algebra or calculus or arithmetic, I don't have to spend time doing that. And I don't make any errors doing that, but instead I can think about the problem. I took a course when I was a student at MIT on rockets and um, we were given homework assignments and it would take us a week to solve the problem because we had to use slide rules, and we didn't have calculators in those days. And uh, we almost always got it wrong, not because we didn't understand. We understood it perfectly. We were doing the right things, but a week's worth of calculations, you made errors along the way. And so today, that very same problem is a homework problem overnight. Because <laughs> You plug it in the machine, you get an answer, which means, though, you can now think more deeply about what you're trying to solve and... Do much more intensive, cre- well, you can do creativity because all that grunt work is hidden. Right, Freeze you. And, uh, that's where I think it is, they're missing the point on chat. The fact that people are going to cheat using it, that's the fault of the professors by, by having stupid homework requirements or stupid <laughs> grades. Um, what we have to do is rethink how we do these things. and We want people to, I want people to think in their assignment, not just parrot back. What we've been told, and yeah. uh, so chat. I think sure we should allow people to use it all the time, but you will still f- find out that people are very creative or powerful, which, and some are not. And yeah, we have to teach people how to use it properly.
1: You you
2: mentioned the uh, like that the university heads being some of the most conservative people. Like, is this is this uh, seismic enough that it might compel them to start changing some of the ways that things so are the taught? Way- do you think? We have to wait and see. I,
0: I was told this by a mentor when I got, after my, my first job was at Harvard, and uh, one of the senior people took me under his wing and he told me, the way to succeed is to live longer than your competitors. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the point is that um, I think that's the younger professors who are going to be the is going to change things, which means it takes a generation or two to make the changes. And the worst problem is, though, uh, and I was just talking to a professor just a couple of days ago. Um, he's in one of the University of California systems, not, not San Diego where I am, but a different one. And he says, We are business school, it does wonderful work. We bring together people from many different disciplines and we work on the problems as a team, and it's really powerful. And this is the way education ought to be. And I said, yes, that's wonderful. How did you manage that? And, how's, and he said, well, actually, it's been a very long, hard struggle. And a lot of us don't get promoted because you promote it. The university sends out around the world to the experts in the world to say, is this person worth promoting? Well, if I'm part of this team and it's doing all sorts of complex problems in many different disciplines, I may have published five important papers, but... They were in five different journals in different fields. And so the expert only saw one of them Says, well, it was a good paper, but it was just one. Besides, it was written by five people. How do I know how much this person contributed? And so the promotion facilities, and in companies, the equivalent of promotion is a reward structure. The reward structure doesn't allow you to make changes rapidly. We have to change the reward structure. Again, so that the gopher... The person nobody knows what they do, except we know that without them we wouldn't succeed. That person often doesn't get recognized by the administration.
1: Yeah, you you've you've said many times I think that uh, this idea of uh, first principles thinking, or I think as you've put it, like find the root problem, right? Um, not yes. don't address the symptoms, and and I kind of go well, you know. It, root problem here is accountability, right? The the concept that that education needs accountability on the students. Teachers need accountability to the students. The facility needs accountability by the teachers. And so they're trying to measure them all so that they can so they can make make sure that that, you know, each person's doing what they're supposed to be doing and they can hold each one accountable. And in doing so, there's no cooperation because the sheer concept of cooperation blurs the lines of accountability. Because the second you have a group of people that produce something, now you have to hold the whole group accountable. And well, that's not fair, right? So so they got to separate why people.
0: Why isn't it fair, right? Exactly. Yeah, why
1: isn't it fair, exactly.
0: You know, I, this is a person that's only published with other people. But so how do we know how much the person did? Well, you know, published 10 papers, and all of them are wonderful papers. It's probably not an accident that that person was involved.
1: Yeah, do you think the accountability is like top down or bottom up? Is it that students want to be held accountable because they want to shine and 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 be singled out, and that teachers or professors want to be accounted account want to be held accountable so they can shine, or is it top down? Well,
0: I think that what you said is true, that the students and professors all want to be stand out, et cetera. But that's because of the top-down reward structure. Okay. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, look, when I taught this last class, it was wonderful. I, I was writing this. I always teach my books as I'm writing them in a class. And so as I was writing the Design for a Better World, uh, I taught actually two classes about it. Um, the, the, cl- the first class, people loved so much, I was asked to do a, a second continuation. And what I did, though, is I'd said, the, the book has six parts. I'm going to divide the class into six sections, six groups of people. And each of you is responsible for one of the sections. And when we come to that period of the time, you're going to present the material. But you should assume everybody else has read it. And what I'm going to do is to check when we start each section, I'm going to give an exam in class to make sure you've all read the book. And that kind of frightened them, especially the first exam. But when they had the exam, they discovered I used Google Forms. <laughs> so they opened up the computer, and they, there was a form. And they had five minutes, and there were three questions. And they only had to answer one of them. But the question required them to think. It didn't ask them to repeat back what they had read. It, it asked them about the implications of what they had read. And, and, and then after five minutes, we, I closed the form. And so, but then I had all their responses in front of me. But I asked them for their responses in class. And we spent the entire hour and a half of that class discussing. And that was really exciting. And then, that, then the team responsible for the section continued for the rest of the week, or two weeks it was, uh, to discussing it. And the students said it was the most enjoyable course they've ever had. And what they felt is that everybody were bonded and together. It was the first time they felt they were part of a team. And the way I graded those exams, I gave them a zero or a one. And the one simply meant I could tell that they had read the book. There weren't any right answers because I asked them these thought processes. But So I might have disagreed with their conclusions, but I could see from their, what they were saying that they had gotten the concepts so they were wrestling with them trying to understand how to put them together. And it was just, it, they, in fact, what they did at the end is they said, we, we want to create a website. So the second course was, well, they created a website about the book for people to learn even more and more. And that website is now running um, the same website the students produced. And I actually thanked them in the website, and I thanked them in the acknowledgments. But it was, what was different, for me, it was the most exciting course I've taught, even though I've been teaching for 20 or 30 years. But the students said the same. And it was but it was so different than their normal courses too.
1: Like, should being a student be a competition? I mean, you hear things like, it's not fair. They use chat GPT, like not fair. What's not fair about it? Well, this is a competition on who can get the best grade and they cheated. Like, oh, is that, is that what it's supposed to be? Is that, is that like, is that what school is supposed to be a competition as well as a place to learn? (laughs) Um, it, like where does competition fit into this and is it one of these human necessary components or, or, are, or are we just inserting this in, in, here because, because that's just, you know, what capitalism is all about?
0: I don't know the answer, but, um, let me look, just use science as an example. And, and actually people, you think people don't understand designers. They don't understand science. <laughs> People think design is making something look pretty. People think that science is uh, all the answers.
1: Right. But actually, <laughs>
0: scientists don't study anything for which we know the answers. <laughs> so scientists only study things we don't know the answers right. in. And so when you ask a scientist about something, they always say, well, we don't really know,
1: mm-hmm. or it
0: all depends, or right. John yeah. has been saying this and he's all wrong. Because one thing you're taught in science is that it's a competition of ideas, Mm -hmm. not of people.
1: Of ideas, okay.
0: When I gave a talk, when I used to give talks at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, they would rip me apart afterwards. And then we would go to the pub and drink all night um, Uh. because we were friends. But when I did one day when I gave a talk and nobody ripped it apart, I knew I had given a bad talk.
1: <laughs> uh, I I think that's profound, personally. What you just said—that it is a competition, but of ideas, not of people. Um, I yeah, I had not thought about that, but that that feels like like a uh, a profound statement.
2: Well, yeah, and like one of the yeah. things that we talk about a fair amount in our book is ways that we can use technology now. Um, to take these tedious tasks out of our lives, but also about how we kind of need to realign our business structures away, f- you know, move them away from an obsession with productivity and more towards creativity, which fits more in line with this idea where it's a, it's a competition for ideas. It's not who could produce the most, uh, you yeah. know, widgets in an hour.
0: So actually I had a problem answering Rob because I was, I was also thinking that competition is good. Mm-hmm. But it's if so, look at look at two companies competing with each other on the same kinds of products. Um, and so each one is trying to be better than the other. And what that leads to is a general improvement of all the products. Right. Because because you go back and forth. You know, I see what the competition is doing and I need to beat it and they see what I'm doing and they need to, to yeah. be better, et cetera. And the same with, uh, with science. Science works that way. You have groups of scientists around the world competing with each other. But again, meeting in conferences to show off what they had done, but learning from the other people. Because quite often, um, you, you, this, this group reports these results and, wow, I didn't know that. Can I see your data? I want to look that over. Mm-hmm. Or I can't repeat it in my laboratory. Can I visit you and you show me what you're doing, etc. So it's a competition, but it's a collaboration simultaneously. Right. But I think the competition is kind of useful because it it's good. It's a sort of a goal. It gives you some gauge of how well you're doing. Yeah, it's motivating. It's more of like
2: a, a friendly competition and not so much a cutthroat one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, when it's, I was at
0: yeah. when I was at Apple, I was a vice president of it was the research lab, the Advanced Technology Group. So. Many We used to have a meeting, I forget whether it was monthly or quarterly, of the vice presidents of research groups in Silicon Valley. And uh, we had to be very careful. We couldn't talk about our businesses. But, um, but one of the things that happened is there was, we, we talked about the fact that we were stealing scientists from the other labs. And it's, maybe we shouldn't allow that or we should be concerned about it, etc. But we ended up with a consensus is that that was a good thing. That yes, you stole my best person, but um, I'm. But it spread the knowledge around, and it made all all of the companies were better for that. And um, it spreads the knowledge around in an interesting way because if I'm working at Apple and I get hired by Microsoft, um, my skills I use, but I'm not allowed to tell Microsoft what I was working on at Apple on the details. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, I learned how a different company operated, how it was organized, how it was structured differently, and the way they approached problems differently. And then, if I come back to Apple, guess what? I'm far better now than I was had I, than I would have been had I stayed the whole period.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. With like with human centered design, which is something that's been talked about for a long time. You know, you're oftentimes doing a lot of user testing, you're getting outside opinions. It's not like it's made in a vacuum, these products, but very often you're working on something uh, that's designed to be commodified and sold and put against other products. Um, But when you move to this idea of humanity-centered design that you share in your book, then those, those lines between individual organizations start to blur a bit because it's, it's less about what's good for one organization. It's kind of what you're talking about. It's like, what's better for this whole ecosystem of organizations within an industry? Yeah,
0: we're destroying the world by making these wonderful, wonderful products that destroy the environment in mining and destroy mm-hmm. the air, land, sea, and manufacturing, and then in disposal. It's
2: but they made users happy.
0: <laughs> but but I still use but, but I still say that human centered design is this is human centered design is simply expanded mm-hmm. that instead of thinking only about the individual people who use it I wanted to think about the impact on the world but yeah. the principles are very very similar
2: yeah yeah and there are all sorts of ways that design thinking can be extended you know to the life or to the things that go into making a product and then to the product's afterlife as well, to think through those steps.
0: And I, I new business models, because um, we can't really rely on planned obsolescence. That's what leads to all the waste.
2: Uh, uh, so yeah. we need
0: a different yeah. model. But, you know, we used to have different models so there are different models. Design thinking, by the way, the way that designers work, I claim, is as a way of thinking and approaching problems that can be used in any area.
2: Yeah, running absolutely. a business,
0: uh, writing a book, uh, organizing a team.
2: So we we have this interesting um, coffee shop that's in our uh, our headquarters in Kiev, and we don't we don't typically have people from inside the organization on this podcast, but we did have uh, these two wonderful women who who kind of help bring this coffee shop to life on the podcast. But there's an element of it that I think you might be interested in. In that they they use the platform that we have for creating conversational automations and experiences collaboratively to literally just any job that they decide they hate. They have a meeting and they figure out how they can get this bot that's named Hugh to do it for them. And and they've been actually able to kind of replace hierarchy within the coffee shop. They don't have a manager anymore anymore. And, and they've kind of come to see that there are all these benefits to it in that like people don't really mind if Hugh tells them or sends them a list of things that they need to make sure they do before they leave. But if a person tells them that they're, they're kind of at odds with that person, it pushes that person away and it would make them it would make it harder to collaborate with that person. And so they've found that technology has kind of stripped away some of the hierarchy within, I mean, it's a coffee shop, but it's not hard to imagine that within some of these businesses, there might be ways to create automations uh, where technology is kind of moving processes into the background or taking them out of human hands so that people uh, feel less at odds with one another and are in these positions where they can can then collaborate more freely and kind of across departments. So what, what do you think about something like that?
0: I would love to see that come about. Yes. Okay.
2: All right. We'll let them know <laughs> because, <laughs> because that seems like the, one of the yeah. hardest things to solve, right? Is like, how do we get the people at the top or how, or how do we get these organizations that have been running on this model for a long time to shift and to do it? I mean, it, it also feels like the clock is ticking. We don't have a lot of time to kind of bring about this change. And so we're at a, an inflection point with this technology that is changing things very rapidly and probably will continue to in unintended ways if it's not used very deliberately, and then, and then you also have this urgent need to change a lot of things very quickly.
0: Yeah. You know, it's the old-fashioned view that um, <clears throat> basically that workers are not very competent. There has to be somebody who guides them and supervises them, and, and so we have this hierarchy where at the very top we have the most highly paid people that somehow are controlling and making it all work. No. I mean, the modern views of, of, of organization are networks not hierarchies. Every, every little node is a person and they all contribute together and you can't necessarily say which is the most important node or the most important person. And so maybe your coffee shop people, they should, um, maybe they should start a course <laughs> teaching people how to do these things together because it's not easy. It requires a special kind of skill and organizational principles.
2: Yeah, it does, and it's interesting because the, the woman who led the project was just about to get out of hospitality because she hated so many of the the trivial things that made it hard to succeed, and so she kind of, it was like the last time she was going to try, and now she's seen that technology can alleviate a lot of those things, like move a lot of those pain points away, and create opportunities for like these-, these more Yeah, but there was things. an
0: interesting comment you made, which is they together- yeah, we would, would discuss what the parts of the job was mm-hmm. that they hated. And then they would together try to figure out a way to overcome that. And mm-hmm. it might be that they couldn't over, they couldn't figure out a way of technology, but maybe there's another way that, yeah, we all hate this part, but so we'll take turns or maybe right. we'll do something else, you know?
1: Yeah, they were, they were sort of, um, training their boss collectively. And <laughs> training and the then, boss
0: so they did yeah, a boss. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yep.
1: And deciding the, the the things that they wanted the boss to remind them of and and the way that they wanted their boss to remind them. And and so when they were reminded, they knew that they signed up for that and that this was just a machine. And as Anna kind of points out, they knew that it wasn't there wasn't, you know, meaning, deeper meaning behind the words. They didn't read into anything because it's just a machine, so it's not that they had a bad day, or it's not that, you know, they they told a, a joke that wasn't funny. Um, they're like, no, we designed Hugh, and Hugh did this the way we all agreed, and and now I'm just going to clean the coffee machine because because <laughs> I I signed up for this. Um, you uh, you talk uh, about this idea of generalists. Um, designers becoming more generalists, uh, you know, having to look more broadly, uh, look at accounting principles and like really looking at the problem from a broader standpoint than just make something that's beautiful and people want to possess, um, you know, uh, and I was wondering, uh, when I was, when I was reading about that. If that's an opportunity for AI to co-create with designers to like bring that element in, could you mentioned the spreadsheet? Could a designer use AI to craft the spreadsheet around the product that would help them communicate it better? Um, You know, could AI be a team member in this co-creation? Could AI AI be the gopher? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the gopher. Well, actually, yeah, I think
0: go. I actually I think that's a good term. I think yeah, AI is a gopher. That is, I I have these. I know I have to put something together, and I know I'm good at doing this, but I'm not good at doing that, or I don't know where I'm going to even find the information, and so I send off the gophers. They help <laughs> me. Um, I just gave a talk where I did that. I was trying to give good examples, and I couldn't think of any. And so I asked Chad, I said, um, how much water is used in the state of California? And how much of water is, is wasted by uh, evaporation? And, uh, and it told me, and then at one point I said, oh, well, that's really interesting. So how much water does the average, do, do households use every, mm-hmm. every year? And it said... Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have access to that kind of information. and um, but the, So I, I tried again, but eventually it told me, well, the average usage per person is 85 gallons a day. Oh, okay, well, there's 365 days in a year. That means the average person uses 31,000 gallons of water a year. And you're saying that 43 million, these are the real figures, by the way, mm-hmm. 43 millions of water are wasted by evaporation In the irrigation ditches, delivering the water to farms, and so I I could then compute and say, oh, that's the amount of water it would take for four million people, just lost because of evaporation, and so um, I couldn't have how I could probably have found that by searching for various searches, but I just asked the question now, it comes the answer, including this I thought was really nice, including it said, I don't know. How to find out how many people, how much water is used by all the inhabitants of California? So, uh, I thought it was nice it told me it didn't know.
2: Yeah, it's an important piece of information for AI to share is is
1: to <laughs> yes. be aware of
2: its limitations instead of mm-hmm. just willfully like hallucinating.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's that's one of the challenges I think we face in this. Space of AI as we try to create alignment. In other words, we want the system to not hallucinate uh, essentially to be less creative. That's, that's ultimately what it spells out. When you look at this, uh, this setting in, in, in chat GPT and others, right? Any, any generative model, you have this setting called temperature, which is, you could almost uh, switch out for creativity because it's going to it's, it's the idea of like introducing more randomness to the result and then that driving more randomness in the answer. And, and, and the more we let it kind of, uh, not just select the, the, the top answer and the more we let it kind of, uh, randomly select from, you know, 20 or 30 top words and then, and then build upon that, the more creative the answers are. So, what we see is that we've released something, and the early releases were like far more random Hallucili- Like I guess what I'm saying is, hallucinations equal creativity, in the space of AI, and and so now a lot of the innovation is going to taking the creativity out of AI, <laughs> not <laughs> not putting it into well, AI.
0: That's not not completely true because. Um, don't forget, they give you those controls. First of all, they usually give you the three levels, but if you actually go inside to the APIs, to the programming language, you can. It's you have a lot of other parameters you can adjust, and temperature can be adjusted, you know, with well, from zero to 100, lots mm-hmm. of permutations. The temperature model comes from actually, because it comes from the physics, where if you're, say, melting metal, uh, depending upon what temperature you keep it at, it, the molecules form different arrangements. So it, it basically, it's do you cool it slowly or do you cool it quickly by dumping it into water? Uh, and, uh, and people who, <laughs> in the old days, people who made swords learned that you do both. For some things, you pounded it with a mallet while it was cooling, and that shaped the molecules. In others, you took the sword and you dumped it into water, and that... Did a different thing to the molecular structure, and uh, so that's This is by analogy what we're doing here with the ideas. That's why it's called temperature. And, um, but yeah, the fact that you can adjust it back and forth is kind of useful. Mm-hmm. If I'm an artist, if the artists who are trying to create new things, they want hallucination. Yeah. If you're a scientist looking for brand new ideas, you might want hallucination, but boy, yeah. you better check. Yeah. But if you're trying to write yeah. your final paper, you better put it on. Yeah. You know, no, no hallucinations,
1: please. Yeah, but now here we are, at least in my perception, and I would say the public at large is, is attacking these systems for hallucinating and and, and for and for failing, basically for failure, it's the whole like, anytime Absolutely. the AI fails, we attack the system and we say, "Oh my God, this is terrible," and 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 we got to get rid of this. So it's it's almost like the same thing. Some people feel like failure is not not acceptable uh, if that somehow doesn't align with someone's values, right? Um, so it, it feels but like I th- think a
0: lot of this is the journalists. Because what, journalists are the first people who get their hands on it and write about it. And their right. job is to make it fail. Their job is to <laughs> show the weaknesses. And so they love to point out the stupid things it said, et cetera, et cetera. But it may take them hours and hours of trying to find it. And it's also, if you take a look at uh, our new our new semi-automatic vehicles, every time there's a crash in a death, it's widely promoted. The fact that a million people a year die in automobile crashes in the world and forty thousand or so in the United States, uh, that's ignored. But the one or two crashes from automated vehicles is highly touted. Um it's in fact when something is very common, we don't talk about it. It's the rare event that we talk about.
2: Yeah, and I think we also maybe accept or expect machines to be to be perfect, right? Like we, we won't really trust self driving cars until that's pushed almost to zero.
0: So that's the point is supposed to self-driving cars were 90% better than we were. So they, yeah. do only have only 4,000 people a year die from automobile accidents in the United States, <laughs> not <4, laughs> 20,000. Well, but every time it'll be a big, you know, scandal. Yeah. There's no such thing as perfect. No. And, uh, no. Because unexpected things, I, my statement is... <laughs> uh, We have to design to handle unexpected things, but we know two things about unexpected things is, first of all, they happen. And second of all, when they do happen, they're unexpected.
2: Well, and they're often opportunities too, you know, like.
0: Well, it depends depends what you're talking about. You're driving. Sure, not not cars crashing, no. (laughs) You have about a half second to figure out what's going on or what you should do about it. And I point out in, in an airplane, Uh, When things go wrong and the plane starts diving towards Earth, commercial aviation, the first thing the pilots do is say, oh, shit. The second thing is, what happened? What's going on? (laughs) But they are very highly trained. They're trained on every single accident that has ever occurred because there aren't that many of them. And second of all, they're tested every six months again and over and over and over again. So they they have – and they have their way up in the sky. They have four or five minutes to respond. And so they invariably pull out, figure it out and pull it and save the airplane. And with automobiles, you have people who are not, they don't understand how it works. They were not very well trained and they have a, a half a second. And that's not enough even to figure out what's happening.
1: Yeah. You talked about uh, this concept and design and I, I really wanted to to hit you up before before we ran out of time here on this which is what I call like emergent complexity, this idea that, you know, engineers can engineer something or design designers can design something with high, with a high confidence or at least a perceived high confidence in, in the outcome or output of what that thing's going to do. And as we're seeing with with transformers and machine learning that we have more of an emergent complexity where they don't, the, the algorithm, it's like, it's like fractals, like the algorithms replicate. So, uh, so many times that you can't predict the outcome. You have to, it's almost like a farmer, like let's just put the seed in the ground and see what grows. And the example you used was uh, I think air conditioners where, where, the emergent complexity was the collective impact of everyone buying an air conditioner and turning it on at the same time. Um, and and how, how design is taught and engineering is taught, um, how does it address this, this world of emergent complexity or does it, or how could it?
0: Well, uh, first of all, uh, part of it is understanding that it's a complex system and that the things that happen that seem to be relatively small um, are interconnected with other things that are happening. And so the air conditioner, as I pointed out, it removes the heat from your home and it puts it outside. (laughs) It actually puts more heat outside than it removes because it's not completely efficient. And on top of that, it requires electricity to run, and where the electricity is generated is put more heat into the atmosphere. So, But it's still a relatively small amount, and it's a big atmosphere. But then again, there are 3 billion air conditioners in the world, and they've been running for 10, 20 years, and over 3 billion, over 10, 20 uh, 20 years, that's a lot. That's enough to change the temperature of the atmosphere. So the more you use your air conditioner, uh, the the more you're going to have to use it because you're raising the temperature. But it's not you alone, it's the fact that everyone is doing it. And that's, that's a very hard concept for people to notice. And, but once you point it out, they do start to understand it. But then there are other concepts that are even more complex. And to say we're in global warming, well, how come it's been so cold for the last so on, Or we have a drought and it's, you know, it hasn't, it, everything's dying and now we suddenly flooded with rain and rain and rain and rain. And rain. And people are dying, dying in the floods. And uh, they don't understand that. And the scientists have not done a good job of explaining it. And so, but it's also very, very difficult to explain. I mean, most people don't even know, understand how a simple thermostat works. You, mm. you come into the home and it's really cold and it's, because you've been away for a week, say. And you come back, what is the first thing you do when it's so cold? You turn the thermostat up all the way. Because that'll make it heat up faster. Well, it doesn't. But it, it, it feels so intuitive that you should make it, you know, say I want you to go to 100 degrees. And I'll turn it off before it gets there, but I want it to get there fast. So uh, I don't know the answer. And a lot of emergent phenomena, by the way, are really difficult to predict. Right. I told, point out that the automobile was going to clean up the city streets because they were covered with horse manure. (laughs) (laughs) And it was really difficult to cross the streets. You ended up in filth. Mm -hmm. And in New York City, that was true. And the automobiles did clean up the manure and cleaned up the streets. But who would have thought that the exhaust from the automobile would end up polluting the world? Right. Because there weren't very many automobiles. Who would have thought that there were going to be billions and billions of automobiles?
2: Yeah, and those predictions just keep getting more challenging to make because we—I th- I feel like we have more more forces converging at a higher rate than right. we did at the turn of the century.
0: At a higher rate, but if it happened immediately, you could predict it, you could understand it. But it can mm-hmm. take a decade. Right. It can take years, a long time, so much that you don't even notice the re- the relationship. Right.
1: It well, just feels that's... like AI could potentially help us through simulations, like help us simulate. Uh, these things and maybe we can see emergent complexity better with AI so now you design something and put it in a model and and that model could run a simulation and maybe you maybe you could notice the long-term impacts
0: that's actually what does happen but you don't need the word AI
1: no, yeah, I, I, you're <laughs> singing parts. my song yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, we laid it out at the beginning and then forgot. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that's how science works. Actually, it's it's very good at making models and trying to predict, um, and they're getting better at models. The trouble with the models is a lot of them are mathematical, and the mathematics of differential equations is actually an averaging model, and it doesn't really tell you how individual particles say, work, and so. There's now something called agent-based modeling where you actually mo- you model a, mo- a molecule and then you put several million of them together and see how they interact and what happens. And you can do that with modern computers. Uh, it's not AI. It's just that there's huge, powerful computers.
2: And, One could could uh, a shift towards like humanity-centered design start to engender just more of that thinking as a byproduct of, of people thinking uh, more long-term in their creations and their... Uh, yeah, operations. there's
0: always been big economic models that are trying to do this, too. They mm-hmm. were also suffering from a lack of data to know what, how to put the stuff in, but also computer systems that were not big enough to actually do the modeling. Mm-hmm. The, the big, the, the, uh, there's probably stuff I don't know about, but the system that I know of best that are doing a fantastic job of prediction and using massive computers is weather forecasting. Uh-huh. Mm. And they use this agent-based approach a lot. And uh, they've gotten really, really good. They can predict where I live that it's going to rain an hour from now. And uh, lo and behold, it does.
2: That's a pretty big development because people have been bagging on on weather reports for a long time. So <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> But the, that, weather is actually an emergent phenomenon, all of weather.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Climate
0: (laughs) is is the underlying structure and that leads to these emergent phenomena that we
1: call weather. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. And it kind of relates back to, and, and, and yeah, we've had no problem as humans pointing out every time the weatherman's wrong. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And every SNL (laughs) skit that we hate. (laughs)
1: I like have no problem putting out what the umpire is wrong. Good point. Well, this has been but great. Some people
0: think it makes the game less interesting because uh, because empires are human and they make errors because some of those things, when you play back the movie in slow motion, you can see where the umpire was wrong. But if you're an umpire trying to figure out where you should stand so you can see the position and there's eight, all sorts of things going on and you have to watch... You know i would just watch the replay of the runner being called safe at first base uh and the person is catching up here and the runner <laughs> is diving down here and trying to see with the catch and the runner hitting which, which came first that's a really hard problem but when you watch the movie slowed up well it's obvious the umpire made a mistake right so it's actually more interesting i think to have a bit of noise in there because umpires are human And when the AI could be perfect, well, that destroys
2: the fun. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, technology has made televised sporting events run on a lot longer than they probably need to. There's a lot of time spent moving it forward and back and forward and back for everyone's Oh, yeah, well, that that could be reduced
0: by better automation.
2: Yeah, I suppose it could. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Don, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, It's been great talking with you. Yeah,
1: and your book's great. Well, it's the greatest yeah. hits. I I think it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah,
0: it's been a great conversation too. So it was. Um, I wasn't sure what topics we were going to cover. Uh,
1: <laughs> we never and do. I'm still
0: not sure what topics we covered because it was a great rambling conversation that I think though, touched upon a number of really important topics.
2: Cool. Yeah, yeah I mean, we yeah, like we to we run really wild sure. a bit. Yeah, no, thank you. This is the kind of conversation I love. Awesome. Awesome. All right, thanks again for joining us on Invisible Machines. That wonderful conversation with Don Norman actually brings us to the conclusion of Season 1 of Invisible Machines, but we will be back in just a couple of weeks with Season 2. We've got a whole brand-new collection of conversations to share, starting with uh, a conversation Rob and I had with Adam Chayer, who's one of the co-creators of Siri. He has all sorts of fantastic insight into conversational design and disruption patterns. Just a really fascinating conversation that uh, that we're excited to share with you in just a couple of weeks. So until then, uh, thank you as always to the team at UX Magazine, especially our producer, Kate Timchenko, who helps so much with booking all these incredible guests. Thank you to the marketing team at OneReach AI. Uh, executive producer on this podcast, Elias Parker, has also been instrumental in pulling together some amazing guests we have had on this season and that we're excited to uh, to share with you next season. Um, and thank you, as always, to our video editor, Michael Litvinov, for making this podcast look and sound amazing. Uh, season one has been a wonderful experience. I'd say it's exceeded all the expectations that I had, so... Really excited to move on to season two, and we will see you again in just a couple of weeks, right here on Invisible Machines. Oh, real quick, don't forget to subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes, especially the exciting ones we have on deck for season two. Also, uh, follow the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. You can watch new podcasts there as well. Thank you again, and we will see you soon.